Good morning. It's good to be worshiping with you. My name's Sam. If I haven't met you, I'm on staff with the church. Uh, we have been working our way through uh, the book of Daniel, and after this week, we have got uh, three weeks left to go. So we're rounding the corner here, coming to the home stretch. And uh, I'm really excited for this chapter, particularly, um, because what we're going to see here is half of the chapter, we get Daniel uh, reading the scriptures. And then it causes him to turn his face to the Lord in prayer. And he prays this beautiful uh, prayer of confession, confession and repentance and crying out to God uh, for mercy and for grace, just acknowledging uh, his sin and the sin of his people that brought them into exile and just crying out to God. Uh, and then we get God's response as he sends the angel Gabriel, his messenger, uh, to go and speak to Daniel. And what we see uh, through this chapter is just this amazing, beautiful picture of this God that, that we just sang about, this God who, who brings reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. It's just so beautiful. God, we see this picture of this God who wants to restore, and no matter how much of a mess uh, his people make of their lives, no matter how badly they turn from God and dishonor God and steal from his glory and do all these things, go after other gods, other idols, false gods, that he still pursues them, lovingly disciplines them, and brings them back to himself. He's the God who restores. That's the message to us this morning, and I just hope that we, we see and we feel and we experience the reality of this amazing God who loves us and wants to see reconciliation between him and us in our lives, who wants to see restoration in our lives, who wants to see us forgiven from our sins and from our brokenness to be made whole and clean and complete and to walk with him in restored relationship. That's our God. And I'm just praying and hoping that as we look to the word this morning, uh, that God really does move in your heart and that he speaks to each one of us uh, and calls us and gives us a heart of confession and of repentance to turn our hearts uh, back to him in praise. And so let's look to the word. We've got Daniel 9. Let's pick it up. Verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then, verse 3, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel is reading the books. He's reading the scrolls. He's reading uh, the Old Testament. And we know that he's reading from the, the book of the prophet Jeremiah. And what he would have been reading, we know because he talks about uh, the 70 years, uh, he would have been reading this passage from Jeremiah 29, uh, starting at verse 10. It says this, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And just the first point that I want to point out here, the first thing I want us to notice is that God's word, the scriptures, point us to God himself. Notice that Daniel, when he's reading uh, the book of Jeremiah, when he's reading about the promises of God to restore his people, to complete the 70 years in exile, the first thing that Daniel does is he turns his face to the Lord. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. As he reads God's word, Daniel's first impulse is to turn his face and seek God. And so the point is that the Bible, the scriptures that we have, this wonderful, amazing gift from God, his word, inspired by his spirit, authoritative, inerrant, perfect word by which he speaks to us, it's meant to bring us into relationship with God. And what I mean by that is it's really easy to slip into a way of Bible reading and thinking about the scriptures where we just read it in order to get some moral guidance or we read it in order to cherry pick some promises of God that we like. Oh, God's going to give me that. He's going to give me that. He's going to give me that. Awesome. Thank you, God. Or we read it as this instruction manual for life, a thing that we can take some, some good ways to live, some good ways that we can be moral beings, perform for God so that he'll love us. But all of that is to miss the point. God has given us his word so that we might know him, so that we might enter into and grow in an intimate relationship with him. He is a relational God who wants to walk with us. Daniel's first thing that he does when he reads the word is he turns to God in response. And so it's this beautiful thing where every time that we go to God's word, that we hear him speak to us through the scriptures, every time that we hear someone teaching us from the word of God, We have this opportunity to hear from God and then to respond. James 1 talks about uh, being doers of the word of God, not just hearers. So the word of God is like a mirror. God speaks to us and he shows us who we are in relation to who he is. And he calls us to look at ourselves and look at who he is and to not just walk away and forget, but to actually go and do something about it. That's what Daniel does. He responds, he turns his face, he turns his heart toward God in prayer. And this has always been the case. Jesus uh, dealt with this with the religious, uh, the religious Pharisees. In John 5, we see this. Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says the scriptures are about me. Every story, every prophecy, everything we read in here points to Jesus and it's been given to us by God in order that we might know who he is and enter into relationship with him. These words have power. The point of these words is to bring us into this walk with God. Is that your devotional life? Is that your life of prayer and of reading the scriptures? Are they leading you into an actual relationship with God or are you just trying to get things for yourself from the scriptures? Without God, the point is to lead us to a relationship with Jesus that we might meet him and know him and walk with him. The second thing we need to learn uh, from what Daniel reads in Jeremiah and from Daniel's prayer of confession is that God's discipline has a purpose. God's discipline has a purpose. Jump ahead uh, in chapter 9 to verse 11. 
says, all of Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And so what we know about why God's people were in exile is that it is the direct result, the consequence of them turning from God, disobeying him, and going after false gods, serving and worshiping idols. And so what we know is that God, when he brought his people out of Egypt, freed them from slavery, redeemed them, brought them through the wilderness, provided for them, miraculously, lovingly gave them manna from heaven, water from a stone, brought them to new life, brought them into the promised land. He made a covenant with them. And he said, follow me, worship me alone, have no other gods before me. And he sets all these laws, the law of Moses, and he says, live this way. This is the way of life that leads to life, to real and lasting life. Follow me in these ways. And if you break my laws and if you turn from me and if you worship other gods, it is not going to end well for you. Listen, I love you. I've provided for you. I've saved you. I've redeemed you. Worship me alone. Do not turn to false gods because you will become false, it says in 2 Kings. You will destroy yourself by going after false gods. And what do the people do? It doesn't take them long to start rebelling against God and going after false gods, start worshiping idols. They raise these ashram poles and they start sacrificing to false gods and doing astrology and star signs and all these things. And God sends prophets, his people, to warn them again and again, turn back to me, turn your heart back to me. You're going the wrong way. It's not going to end well. There are going to be consequences. Turn back to me. And they are, the scripture says, stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-hearted. And they won't turn back to God. And eventually, that's what Daniel's praying about, eventually it leads to God's discipline. Because he loves them, he, he won't let them continue to go that way. And so he removes them from the land and puts them into exile. That's what the 70 years are about. God sees his people that he loves going away that is leading to their death, to their ultimate destruction. And he loves them so much that he is willing to take drastic and even painful measures toward them in order to correct them and bring their heart back to him. That's how much God loves them. And so we can look at that and go, well, that's mean, God exiles 70 years. Or we can look at that as, wow, that's how much God loves them. He won't let them run toward that cliff that they were headed toward. He disciplines them in order to bring them back. And what we, what we learn from Jeremiah, from the passage that Daniel was reading, uh, we get the famous uh, coffee mug verse, right? The famous graduation ceremony verse, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so we often rip that one out of context, right? To say, hey, life's going to be all good. God's got a plan for you. It's a hope. It's a future. Don't worry. Nothing bad's going to happen. It's going to be sunshine and rainbows. 
But what that does is it ignores the context. It's given that verse is a beautiful promise of God given to his people in the midst of their rebellion. And it's God saying to them, this is going to hurt. This is going to be painful. You're going to be in exile for 70 years, but trust me that it's for your good. I have a plan for your hope and your future. It's not because I'm an angry tyrant and I want to just pour out my wrath on you. It has a purpose. It's to bring your heart back to me. And I think we can forget this sometimes, that God's discipline is for a reason. It is for our ultimate good. It is for our ultimate righteousness. It is for our hope and our future. God wants to turn our hearts around and turn our hearts back to him. Hebrews 12 puts it beautifully. It says this, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They, the human fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been, what, trained by it. And so the reality is this. I don't don't want you to get the wrong impression. Don't mishear me here. I'm not saying that every painful thing, that every bit of suffering in your life, that every hard thing that you are dealing with is the result of your sin. I don't think the Bible teaches that. There are examples to the contrary. We look at Job. He was an upright and a righteous man. Okay? His suffering wasn't because he was uh, in any particular sin. It was because God allowed the devil to go, to go at him and to rip apart his life, but he couldn't touch him. But it, we know that it wasn't because of his sin. Uh, and there's an instance in John uh, chapter 9 uh, where there's a blind man. He's, he's born blind and Uh, Jesus is going to heal him and his disciples look at him and they go, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his father? Who sinned that he was born blind? And Jesus goes, neither. But that the glory of God might be shown in him. And he goes on to heal him. And so all of our pain and our suffering, don't, don't start to think that that's necessarily a result of some sin that we have in our life. The reality is we live in a broken and sinful world and there are consequences to sin. And sometimes it's not the direct result of a specific sin that we are in. But at the same time, as we see with God's people, there are very real consequences to our own sin as well. And what we see is that sometimes God will allow us to feel the weight and the sting and the discipline of the decisions that we have made and the things that we have done. And it is not because he's just mean and angry and it's meaningless is because there's a, he has a plan for it. He wants to turn our hearts back to him. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who, who what? Who have been trained by it. And so we need to not 
waste the discipline of the Lord. If, if you are feeling, if you've been convicted in your heart that there is something, there are things that you have done, you're living, you're feeling the brokenness of some sinful things that you've been involved with, and you're feeling that conviction of the Lord, don't waste it, be trained by it. And turn your heart back to God because he wants to restore you. He wants to restore his people. He wants to restore us. And as we read on, we learn that the path to that restoration that God wants to take us through is through confession and repentance. Let's pick it back up at verse 4. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, to those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. And then jump down to verse 16. It says, O Lord, according to all of your, righteousness, your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. We get this beautiful prayer of Daniel of confession and repentance. It says sackcloth and ashes and fasting. Those are signs of repentance. And he confesses the sins. He owns up to it. He, he takes accountability for it. And he is heartbroken, heart-wrenched by the ways that he and his people have gone against God, have sinned against God, have dishonored God. And he just has this plea for the mercy of God, for the grace of God. Hear us, God. Forgive us, God. Deliver us. And that's where God needs to get us to this place of confession and repentance. Those are two words that I think have, have fallen out of favor. Sometimes we have this, uh, some of us might flinch uh, when we hear those words. We might have some bad connotations with them. We might think of a, a dusty old confession booth and a guy in a robe that for some reason we had to tell everything bad uh, that we'd done that week. We might think of signs at angry protests that say turn or burn, repent or die. These angry people and that's a shame because confession and repentance have always been, throughout 
all of the Old Testament, throughout all the New Testament, the time of Jesus, the time of the apostles, right up till today, confession and repentance are a beautiful gift that God has given us, that he has called us to, because through those things, he wants to restore us. He wants to lift us from our brokenness, from our sin, and do something about it. And take the weight, the burden, the guilt, the shame that we carry for our sins, for our brokenness, and deal with it and do something with it because he's the only one who can. And so what is true repentance? Daniel shows us here, and um, J.C. Ryle has a great definition, if we can get it up there. It says this, True repentance is no light matter. It is a thorough change of heart about sin. A change showing itself in godly sorrow and humiliation, in heartfelt confession before the throne of grace, in a complete breaking off from sinful habits and an abiding hatred of all sin. Such repentance is the inseparable companion of saving faith in Christ. So the word repent It means a change of mind, change your thinking in the Greek. And in the Hebrew, it means a complete change of heart, a brokenness of heart where we turn from sin and we turn with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength toward God again. We turn from our sin and turn toward God. And it starts with the thinking. We recognize and acknowledge our sinfulness before God and then it sinks down into the heart and it's this very real brokenness, this anguish over sin, not over the consequences, not over... Uh, what might happen uh, if we bring the sin out, our reputation or anything else, not fear of getting caught. It's a heartbrokenness over the way that we have offended God and broken the heart of God who loves us. And it results in a very real action taken to forsake that sin, to turn our heart from it and turn the direction, a complete 180 of our heart and our mind toward God again. And I just, I wonder how much freedom and joy we miss out on because we don't engage with this. This is not just a one-time thing that we do when we come to faith in God. It is how we enter uh, into a relationship with God. We repent and we turn in, in faith to Christ to take care of our sin and he forgives us. But then it's this ongoing thing. The apostles write about this. They call us to this all the time. Jesus said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come. And the apostles write, repent, continue to repent, ongoing repentance. Keep turning from your sin and turning toward God. And this is how God restores our brokenness. But I wonder how much we we miss that, how much we miss out on this for a number of reasons. Because it's hard, right? It's hard to bring our sin out into the open. It's hard to first acknowledge it and the seriousness of it because we feel shame, because we might be afraid of what others will think. We might be afraid of what it might do to our reputation, what it might do to our relationships. We might be afraid of God even and afraid to come to him. And I think sometimes we, we avoid even acknowledging our sin. We, we avoid checking our own heart because it takes humility. Some people have said to me, man, Christianity is all about grace. It's all about, it's a free gift. That's way too easy. No, it's not because it takes humility. It takes checking your pride at the door. It it takes checking your pride. Very few of us can actually do that. It takes humility to recognize 
and actually acknowledge and face up to the fact that I am a broken sinner in need of saving. It takes humility. And I think so often we, we run from this. We try to uh, blame others. We try to blame our situation that we're in for our sin. And that's what we've been doing from the beginning, from the garden, Adam and Eve, right? God says, don't eat the fruit from that tree. They do it. And he goes, guys, what's the deal? What happened? What do they say? Adam goes, well, God, it's the woman you gave me. Right? Who's used that one before? It's the woman you gave me. And Eve goes, it was the snake. The snake deceived me. Right? They shirk the blame immediately. They don't own up to it. And I think sometimes we compare ourselves to others and we go, well, I'm not that bad. Come on, ease up. I'm not that bad compared to this guy, compared to that guy. Look what he's done. Look what she's done. I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. You know, we all have those friends that we hang out with to feel a little bit better about ourselves. Yeah. And if you can't identify those friends, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're probably that friend. We all do that, right? I'm not that bad compared to the next guy, but that is just such a misunderstanding of God's grace because God doesn't grade us on a moral curve. He doesn't compare us to others and see how righteous we are and let us in on that merit or any merit for that matter of our own. God's standard of holiness is perfection. When we get a glimpse of that, of how holy he is, how good he is, how perfect he is, it brings to light how imperfect we are. It's not about us compared to someone else. It's that we can never live up to the perfect standard that God requires. And because of that, there is an infinitely large gap between us and God that we cannot cross by our own merits. We can never live up to that perfect standard. And that is exactly why we need somebody to be perfect for us. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Trading his perfection, giving his perfection to us, his righteousness to us, and taking our imperfection on the cross. And so we need to face up to that. We need to face up to our sin. But I think some, for some of us, that's not the problem. We're, we're able and willing to, to see our own brokenness and our own sinfulness. But then we stay there. We stay in our shame. We stay in our guilt. And we just walk around carrying this 100-pound burden on our shoulders of, of just shame and guilt for all the things that we've done. And that's not where God wants us to stay either. Right? And why do we do this? Because it hurts to, to come face to face with our brokenness and to bring it before God. But that's what he wants us to do, to bring it out into the open, confess it to him, to lay it at his feet. And to say that I can't do that because I'm scared of God, that's to misunderstand God, to think that we need to be afraid of him when we come to him with our sin. He said, come to me, all who are heavy laden, all who are burdened. And what? I will give you rest. He says in 1 John, verse 8, he says, all who say that they are without sin are deceiving themselves. But all who come to me and confess their sins, John says, God is always faithful and just to forgive those sins and to cleanse and to make you righteous. We don't need to be afraid of coming to God. We, that's exactly what we need to do. And I think sometimes we in our, in our own attempts, our own efforts to preserve ourselves, we think we're keeping ourselves safe. We actually cut ourselves off from the only thing that can give us life and joy and freedom in forgiveness of our sins. Right? And so we end up like David when he had committed this atrocious sin. He had slept with a, a married woman and then 
he had commanded her husband to go out into the front lines of battle so that he would be killed. And then David starts to feel the weight of the sin and he, he's not confessing it, he's keeping it inside. And this is what it says, Psalm 32. This is David's cry. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Some of us are feeling this. Some of this, this is, this is exactly where we are. We're like David. We're keeping our sin and our shame and our guilt inside. We're carrying it around. We're keeping silent and our bones are wasting away. We're groaning all day long. We feel like there's this weight, this heavy hand on us. We feel like we're just getting destroyed, wasting away. We feel like our strength is dried up. We feel like our relationship with God is dried up. That we can't go to him. We're hurting. We're just, we learn to walk with a limp. We walk through life just, I guess this is how it's always going to be. I'm just always going to feel this way. I'm going to have this, this half-life, this, this tired life, this weighed down life with the burdens of my own sin and guilt. And that's not what God wants. He wants us to confess and bring it to him and turn our heart from it. Look what happens when we do that. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. But God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Do not think that if we bring our sin to God, he is just going to destroy you. He's your hiding place. He's your refuge. He's your strength. He's your shield. He's your fortress, your protection. Don't run away from him. Run to him. If we confess our sins, 1 John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus says, come to me. Lay your burdens down at my feet. I'll give you rest for your soul. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think some of us right now, we're, God might even be putting something on your heart, on your mind right now that you've been carrying around, that you, that you haven't dealt with, you haven't confronted, you've just been carrying it around for so long, you're tired, you feel like your bones are wasting away. You gotta lay that thing down, you gotta bring it out into the open and not be afraid of God, but run to him. Because on the other side of that is restoration. God has always desired our forgiveness and our restoration. We see that in Daniel's prayer of confession and repentance. And then we see God's answer, God's response. Pick it up at verse 21. Daniel says, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. We need to hear this. Look at this. This is beautiful. God's response is that he hears us. Sometimes we cry out to God and we think he's not listening. Sometimes it feels like our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and bouncing right down, right? We feel dry in our prayer life. We feel like God's not listening anyway. We've been crying out to him. You need to know that he hears you. It's just so beautiful. Look at this. It says, 
uh, it says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. At the beginning of your pleas. So before Daniel can even finish his prayer, as he's pouring out his heart to God, before he's even done, at the beginning of his prayer, a word went out. God goes, I heard you. I see you. And not only that, but a word went out and I have come to tell it to you. Why? For you are greatly loved. While Daniel is in the midst of confessing his and his people's sin against God, their brokenness, their filthiness, their rebellion against God, in the midst of that confession, God says, I hear you and you're loved. Hear this, you're loved, you're loved, you're loved. I love you. And because I love you, I'm listening to you. As soon as you started to confess, as soon as you started to turn your heart back to me, I heard you and a word went out. Help is already on the way. God hears us, God loves us, and God forgives and restores us. And this vision, this 70 weeks, we'll read it. It's really complicated, but if you don't hear anything else, just hear this. God has always had a plan for our restoration, a plan for our forgiveness, a plan to do something about the sin of the world And it was prophesied before it even happened and it came to fruition and it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ who has done it all, who has paid it all for our sins that we might be forgiven and restored. God has always had a plan to forgive and restore. And so pick it up at verse 24. It says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, this is where it gets a little bit crazy. I hope you've had your coffee. Switch on. Okay, got to follow this track with this. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So we're going to stop here. 70 weeks are decreed. So that word weeks, have a look there. That actually means in the Hebrews, literally 70, or sorry, sevens. So 70 sevens is what that says literally. And what we know from Leviticus, uh, based off of uh, the Sabbath principles that were given to Israel, they were supposed to work six days, rest on the seventh. And they were supposed to Uh, plant and harvest their fields for six years and then let the field lay fallow and rest on the seventh. And then uh, seven sevens, seven years of seven, okay, was the year, so 49 years was then to be the year of jubilee, the year of freedom where they'd return to their land, freedom, joy, celebration. Okay, what this is meant to, uh, this vision here is meant to, Uh, be a type of, but a fulfillment of an even greater than is the Jubilee. So when you look at the 70 weeks, the 70 sevens, it means basically 490 years. So where the the year of Jubilee was 49 years, we are now looking at 490 years. So basically what Gabriel is saying, what God is saying to Daniel and to us is that I've got a plan of restoration and forgiveness that is basically a jacked up, way more awesome year of jubilee, ultimate fulfillment of freedom and joy for you in the forgiveness of your sins. And basically there's so much disagreement in the rest of this prophecy and this vision about when exactly all of this happens. The important thing for you to know is that it happens in 
basically three sections of fulfillment. So the details of that, the exact year, some people press the exact years really hard in a really literal way uh, to try and land in the exact years that all of these things were fulfilled. Uh, It's apocalyptic literature, so I don't necessarily think that it uh, requires that we read it that way. The important thing to know is that God is fulfilling this plan of restoration in three main things. It was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened, and then it actually happened. So God's plan of restoration happens in real time in human history. It finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And if you want, email me. I can give you some great resources to read about the different views and different opinions on it. I'll tell you right now that people with more degrees than Fahrenheit can't agree on how this actually works itself out. Um, But we will have a look here, and I just want you to hear some really important things. So this first section uh, starts at verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. So this first section of God's fulfillment of redemption plan Okay, what's going to happen? A word from an anointed one is going to go forth for Jerusalem to rebuild their city. That happened. So it happened in the year 538 BC. Uh, King Cyrus was the anointed one. He was called the anointed one in Isaiah 44. And King Cyrus is the one who put out the decree for God's people in exile to be able to go home and rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple. That happened. Fulfilled. Then for 62 weeks, uh, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So that's the second section. So we got the decree to go out, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. It happened through Cyrus, the anointed one. Okay, that second section, 62 sevens. Okay, that's when it's actually going to be rebuilt, but in a troubled time. That happened. What it's referring to with the troubled time is what Sean taught us about last week. Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greeks wreaked all kinds of havoc, all kinds of war, all kinds of ugliness. And uh, the wall and the temple and the city of Jerusalem were rebuilt in that time, but it was under troubled times. So we saw that that actually happened. What's next? Look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, so that brings us to the final section an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What do we need to see there? So after the 62 weeks, the final section of God's redemptive plan, what's going to happen? An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That's that prophecy that refers to Jesus. The anointed one, the word is Messiah, comes and he is cut off. He's rejected by his own people, the Jews. He's brought outside of the city. He is rejected by his own disciples who deny him and run away. And then he is crucified rejected by the religious zealots, and then even in the end, hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the Father turns his face away. He's rejected even by the Father in that moment as he becomes our sin on that cross. He's the anointed one that is cut off and has nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that prince, that's Titus, 
leader of the Roman Empire, or uh, sorry, Roman army, who came in AD 70, destroyed the temple. And its end shall come with a flood, and to the, the end there shall be war. So Titus leads the Roman army. They come in, wipe it out, destroy it. That actually happened, AD 70. And there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So that's referring once again to Jesus. And so it's split, that last section of redemption, split in half. So the first half of the week or the seven, that's where Jesus, the anointed one, is going to put an end to sacrifice and offering and make a new covenant. And this is beautiful. That's what Jesus did. He came in. What did he say in Matthew 24? He takes the cup and after he gives thanks, he gives it to his disciples. He says, this is the blood of my covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant that Jesus makes. No more offerings at the, at the altar. No more animal sacrifice. No more of any of these things. I'm the great high priest. The ultimate sacrifice once and for all for your sins, making a new covenant with God's people. This promise that was for God's people originally, the Jews is now blown wide open for Jew and Gentile and anyone who would believe in Jesus. He puts an end to sacrifice and offering and makes this covenant with his people. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And so that second half of that last section, we're in that time now, I believe where there's war, there's desolation, there's strife, there's conflict, but Jesus is coming back. He has promised to one day come back and make all things right and make all things new until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator where he throws, Jesus is going to throw the desolator, the Antichrist, down. He's going to make a final end, bring an everlasting righteousness, put a final end to all sin, and we will be with him. All who have turned to Jesus in faith will be with him in perfection. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more brokenness. And so the important thing to know, if you get lost in all that and you checked out for all of that, that's okay. But just hear this. God has always had a plan to redeem us, to forgive us, to restore us, and he actually brought it to fulfillment in history, in real time, and we are now living in that new reality. God said through the angel Gabriel to Daniel, yes, I will forgive you, I'll redeem you, I'll bring your people back to the land, but let me show you that I've got this grander, this bigger redemption plan that I'm working out, and we are now living in that time, in that reality, where God desires our wholeness. God desires that our brokenness be made that our sin be laid at his feet, that he can actually take care of it. He did these things. He went to the cross. He filled that gap that was between us and God. He lived out the perfection that we could never live and gave us his righteousness. He became our sin, who knew no sin, on the cross and was destroyed on that cross, took the rejection of the Father that we actually deserved for our sin so that all who turn to him in faith will never have to feel the brokenness and never have to carry around the weight and deal with the ultimate consequences of our sins, which is death. And so I wonder if we can hear this and actually do something with it. Like Daniel heard the word of the Lord, read the word of the Lord, and turned his face to God in response, like we are called to not be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. What is this calling us to? 
to be people of confession and repentance, people who don't push down our sin, people who don't pretend we have no sin, people who don't walk around with a limp, carrying around the weight and the burden and the shame and the guilt of our brokenness. Jesus died to forgive that. He died to take that. And we are called to be people who live in that and walk in that. And so if there are things, and I'm sure there are things as they, there are for me and there are for all of us, that we have been refusing to lay at the feet of God, that we have been refusing to actually f- confront and deal with and realize that every time we sin, we are fracturing, we are hurting our relationship with God, but that he has made a way for restoration, for us to be walking with him in righteousness, in right relationship. And so what do you need to do right now? As we sing this last song, as the band comes up and we we sing, we, we ask God to revive us, to show us our sin. Would you just ask God to search your heart? Would you make this a regular part of your life where you, you search your heart and you ask God by the power of the Holy Spirit to search your heart and show you the things in you that need to change, things that you need to confront and don't be afraid to bring it to your loving Father who knows you, who cares, who loves you, who hears you. We're going to enter into a time of that now. And so I would just ask that you you do make this a prayerful, worshipful time and confront the things on your heart. Bring them to God. Spend this time worshiping, praying. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do not leave us in our brokenness. You do not leave us in our state of hopelessness and helplessness, Lord, but you made a way. Thank you, Lord, that you actually hear us And that even in the midst of our sinning and in the midst of our, just all the things that we do to turn away from you, you still love us. You love us right now. Wherever we're at right now, you love us, God, and you are calling us back to yourself. Lord, would you do this work of revival, do this work of restoration in our hearts, that we might taste and see a little glimpse of what we are ultimately heading for in eternity with you when you make all things new and you make all things right, Lord, would we be people of redemption? Would our church be a place where we can be honest about our brokenness and our sin and not run from it and hide from it, but run to you and help others to run to you, the only one who can do something about it, who has made a way through your sacrificial, uh, your perfect life, your sacrificial death and your resurrection, Lord. Help us to be people who, who turn to you and who live and experience and walk in a restored, redeemed relationship with you and bring that redemption and that restoration to a broken world who needs to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.